Micah 6, 6 to 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the first of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Amen. The second reading is from Nehemiah. So it's a, some verses in chapter 11 and then some verses in chapter 12. So starting at verse 1 in Nehemiah and going through to verse 4, then from 20 to 36 and then in chapter 12 after that. Page 406 in your pew Bibles. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. But in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and of the sons of Benjamin. Now going over to verse 20. And the rest of Israel and of the priests and the Levites were in all the towns of Judah, everyone in his inheritance. But the temple servants lived on Ophel, and Zehar and Gishpah were over the temple servants. The overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzziah, the son of Barni, son of Hashabiah, son of Madaniah, son of Micah, of the sons of Asaph, the singers, over the work of the house of God. For there was a command from the king concerning them, and a fixed provision for the singers, as every day required. And Pethahiah, the son of Meshezebel, of the sons of Zerah, the son of Judah, was at the king's side in all matters concerning the people. And as for the villages with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in Kiriath Arba and its villages, and in Debon and its villages, and in Jacobzeel and its villages, and in Jeshua and in Molodah and Bethpelet, in Hazar-Shual, in Beersheba and its villages, in Ziklag, in Mechanah and its villages, in Enrimon, in Zorah, in Jarmuth, Zanoah, Adullam and their villages, Lachish and its fields, and Azekar and its villages. So they encamped from Beersheba to the valley of Hinnom. The people of Benjamin also lived from Geba onward, at Michmash, Ijah, Bethel and its villages, Anathoth, Nob, Ananiah, Hazor, Ramah, Gitaim, Hadid, Zeboim, Nebalat, Lod and Ono, the valley of craftsmen. And certain divisions of the Levites in Judah were assigned to Benjamin. Now through to chapter 12, starting at verse 22 to 26. In the days of Eliashib, Joadah, Johanan and Jaduah, the Levites were recorded as heads of fathers' houses. So too were the priests in the reign of Darius the Persian. 
As for the sons of Levi, their heads of fathers' houses were written in the book of the Chronicles until the days of Johanan, the son of Eliashib. And the chiefs of the Levites, Hashabiah, Sherebiah and Jeshua, the son of Cadmiel, with their brothers who stood opposite them to praise and to give thanks according to the commandment of David, the man of God, watch by watch. Mataniah, Bakbukiah, Obadiah, Meshullam, Talmon and Akab were gatekeepers, standing guard at the storehouses of the gates. These were in the days of Joachim, the son of Jeshua, son of Josadak, and in the days of Nehemiah the governor and of Ezra the priest and scribe. Good morning. What well, lovely to see you all. I'm going to try some new glasses today. So if it doesn't go right, I know who to blame. Yeah. All right, now we're going to be talking about this morning, we're going to talk about your priorities. What are your priorities? Uh, and linked to your priorities, I'm going to ask you what are your priorities in terms of outreach and doing what God is asking of you in turn for saving you. So these are the things we're going to do. Jerusalem, during this time of Nehemiah, had sadly been depleted of the people and it was an urgent matter that required correction. Lack of population or even too much population, of course, causes some serious, serious problems for communities. Not many people were left behind here in Judah and Jerusalem uh, after Nebuchadnezzar had, of course, come in and transported the king and all the leaders, the princes, the, all, the, all the people that basically ran Judah and Jerusalem had been taken out and brought back to Babylon. And of course also Nebuchadnezzar had made sure that the temple and the walls and everything else had been completely broken down. There was nothing left. Uh, rendered, of course, Jerusalem absolutely unsafe to dwell in. For this reason alone, that unsafety that is in there, the majority of the people had decided to leave Jerusalem and then live in the countryside where there was a better option for maybe uh, escaping or running away. But speaking of population, it's an interesting thing when we look at that. We look at the growth of the population in the world and, and the world around us. Uh, since those early days, to get an understanding, sort of get a grip on the picture of what happened there, understanding how this may affect our priorities in how we are dealing with that and how we can do best for the Lord, how we can serve Him the best in line of what is happening to our world. The population in the world around 500 BC, the time of Nehemiah, was around estimated to be around 100 million people. By the time Jesus comes and walks on earth, that has gone up to 250 million people. And then it doubles by the time we reach 1600 AD. After the, at the time of Reformation, it has now gone to about 500 million people. It's 
in relative terms, quite slow, but you've got to also keep in mind that there had been two, uh, babu- two plagues going through Europe uh, that killed nearly 50% of some regions of Europe. And then, of course, we get to 1800, um, and we have one billion people in the world. From there on, the population picks up a bit, In 1980, there was 4.5 billion people in the world, and that was also considering that we had two world wars in the middle of all that. And then we get to 2000, not that long ago, we had 6.2 billion people. So they added 2 billion people in 20 years. And then by the end of this year, we're going to be about 8.5 billion on this globe. We're going to feed them all, aren't we? But, in 500 BC, it was also estimated that 2% of the population lived in towns and cities. In today, we have over 90% of the people living in the cities. And then they have the countryside. So, what on earth has all that got to do with Nehemiah's passage here today? Well, it's quite simple. It is actually... We need to understand our demography, the community we live in, to give us a greater depth of understanding of what priorities should be in light of the great commission that Jesus has given us. In other words, how can we best live out and honour the great commission, including our personal and the corporate commitment to uphold our support and the reverence for his church. That's what today is about. So let's pray before we start. Our Lord and the Father, we ask that you may take all this information, store it well and truly in our minds, that we will consider all these things as we then consider our commitment and our promises made to you the day you revealed your Son to us. May you guide us by your Spirit to full understanding and a whole new level of commitment, Lord. May this be so in your strength and your power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this chapter we're dealing with today, 11 and part 12, is very much about how to build and sustain a church and a people within the church. Uh, I'll explain that as we go. In verse 1 we had, Now the leaders of the people who live in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring out one in ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remain in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who were willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So they're going to be uprooting a lot of them and they're going to move them back into town. Having a functional uh, centre of administration and worship uh, was obviously of great importance to Nehemiah or to God. Jerusalem was to be the seat of the administration of Judea. It would also be, of course, the seat of worship uh, for all the Israelites. Jerusalem had been, after all, been the site where God had wanted David to set up the government of Israel as a joint country. But also where Solomon had been told to build the temple of God to replace the tabernacle that had travelled with the Israelites through the desert in 40 years. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was going to be and that's where it's going to be housed. Obviously it's the same for us. 
We are today the temple of God. The God's Holy Spirit lives in us. And that's where we need to have our mind firmly set. Obviously, for this to be functional again, we require many more people to come into Jerusalem to be able to sustain all the work that's going to be done in that town. They're going to live and work within the city, and it had indeed been made possible by the restoration of the walls around Jerusalem, and now all they had to do was indeed build the dwellings that these people were to live in. Not too different to what we have today. We're having lots and lots of people coming in, back to Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, but there is not enough houses for them. And it's going to be that for a long time. It's difficult also to overlay the situation that happened in Nehemiah's day over the condition that we found then in the day of Jesus, maybe 450 years later, let alone what we have in our world today. Considering the cities we now hold over 90-95% of the population, it is likely to increase over time. We do, however, consider all this impact on the way we conduct our worship, how we conduct our outreach, how we administer and outreach to the communities that we are living in, where you have decided to live. Even how we are to support the outer-lying communities with a sparse population that are struggling all the time to be able to provide for a minister to guard their flock. The general situation had not changed much from the time of Nehemiah to the days of Jesus in that regard. Jerusalem was still the seat of worship of God, but sadly the temple servants, the priests, and others had during that long intertestamental period of 400 odd years had signed-lied God completely, had completely disregarded the Holy Scriptures, and as we now know, it is not how you build a church or a community of believers. You are focused on God. When I use the term church, it's like a fellowship, the ecclesia. It is, after all, it is the people, you people, that make the church. It had nothing to do with the building we just as Jesus worshipped in synagogues and he worshipped, of course, in the temple, uh, we can, of course, we can worship in any building anywhere. It makes no difference. We can today worship in any building, even more so. We are, as I said earlier, we are the temple of God. Where we are, God is with us and we can worship him anywhere we go. And it's all in the same way as the temple of the ark was living in that temple, so he now lives in us. In verse 3 to 9, we get some structural uh, stuff that Nehemiah is implementing. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. But in the towns of Judah, everyone lived in his property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and the sons of Benjamin and then of the sons of Judah. All these families are living around the, that area. And these are the sons of Benjamin. So he names all these people and he's all through the whole of Nehemiah we have all these names. And thankfully, of course, Elizabeth is very good at these names. So, but it's very important that he mentions all the names because every single one of you matters to God. It matters for his ministry to the world. And then, of course, we have in verse 10 all the priests that's going to be involved with that. 
They are the ones that should guide spiritually the population. And sometimes for that reason, I think we need to adjust our thinking a little. Uh, what, if, what if we considered then the foster Tonkari area to be like Jerusalem for us? And what if we consider our church here to be the centre of worship within that area and this is what we need to take care of. So we get a mindset that says this is something to protect. It is of value to not only us, but it's of value to God. We have this multitude of people living in this area all around us. I think last count, 23,000 people here. And when sometimes they come here into the house of God, where we are ready to help them and guide them and nurture them in the teaching of God's word, and in the proper worship of God. Again, it's sort of like the same thing that happened in the day of Jesus. When he calls his disciples back then, they sort of knew of God, the people of Jerusalem and Israel as a whole. But most of them did not know God. They knew of him, but they did not know him. Not a personal relationship. Therefore, Jesus spent the next three years training and teaching his disciples and all the miracles that he performed were certainly for, maybe for the people, but they were focused on those 12 disciples to give them a real, true faith and understanding that Jesus is the Son of God, that they would be able to carry on a ministry beyond the life of Jesus. That's not different to what we do today and what we have been called to do today. We are here to also bring up our children and grandchildren in the understanding and the truth of the scriptures. Every today, even today, the majority of the population have at some stage possibly heard of the churches, they have maybe heard the word God used somewhere, but actually they are very, very unable to verbalize what is God. They couldn't tell you. Most people actually use the name of Jesus in a way it should never be used. There are these 49 people at last uh, census in Australia that claim to be Christians. Can you imagine how full the churches would be if 50% of this country would be in a church every Sunday morning? We wouldn't have room for them. Yet, none of them, or very few of the people, the 49%, actually know Jesus personally. 39% of the population doesn't want to have anything to do with them. And then we have the balance of 10%. Well, they are just totally and utterly satisfied with where they're at in life and what they have. The problem is, when we take the gospel out into this world, who do we talk to? I mean, if we only knew who was going to be called by God, then it would be easier. We could just go to them and talk to them. But we don't know that. So it is just the same as we have in Luke's uh, chapter 8 of the Gospel, where he spreads the seed wide and far, everywhere it goes, and some will take and some won't. And that's what your job is. It's just to talk to anyone you meet and give them the gospel. Some will hear it, some will understand it, and some will accept it. Now let's go from there, look at the structure that are being set up here. 
Nehemiah is structuring not only Jerusalem, the town and the buildings, he is also uh, restructuring pretty well the whole of Judea, moving the people around to suit the purpose of God, all for the living benefit of God. To accomplish that, it needs participation of all the people in Judea and Jerusalem and about. And he has to find of including them and make them not only feel that they are part of that solution, but they also want to be a practical part of that solution. Again, we have no change between Nehemiah's day and today. We need each one of you to feel that you are actually part of the solution, that you are practically part of what God wants us to do. As a Christian community, we also must have a theological sound basis on which we can start planning for the future of this church. As humans, we need something bigger than ourselves that will make our guide in, in times of trouble. When we are challenged, it needs to be something bigger than you to keep you going through that. A strong God-focused commitment is required for a democratic form of administration to succeed. And when I talk democratic, it is the Presbyterian system. It is democracy. We are governed by our congregation, you. You are the governing body of this church. With the Holy Scriptures as our foundational document, it is our constitution, if you like. Everything we do refers back to that, the Holy Scriptures. And the Holy Scriptures provides this structure. So when we as an individual commit to this church or the church we go to, we also commit to honour the structure that is set in place by that scripture because God deemed it right and he gave us all that through his apostles. As a church we need to be a community within the bigger towns and cities as well as in those sparsely inhabited country regions guarded by the biblical standard that we found in Micah. In 6.8 it tells us, He has told you, O man, what is good. So we know what is good. He's told us. And what does the Lord require of you and me? To do justice and to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. If you say it really fast, it's easy. But it isn't. What does he actually mean? There's a number of things we get from what Jesus teaches. We start with Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. God, considering the undeserved mercy that we are recipients of, we should obviously also always be willing to be merciful to others. And in that regard, just never forget that God did not wait for you to repent before he sent Jesus to die for you. He sent Jesus to die for you to forgive you before you repented. You don't need to have people come to you to apologise. You can forgive them before that. When I for any reason wrong a brother or sister in Christ, fundamentally, I'm sinning against God. And I should, while I seek mercy from whoever I have offended, I is more important that I also understand that I need God's forgiveness for that sin. Just as it's maybe just a little more difficult for you and I to get hold of. To be the recipient of true, true justice. Not what we have in the world today, which is the social justice, which is 
kind of woofy stuff. It doesn't really mean anything. But true justice, I should be willing to accept the appropriate punishment proportionate to the seriousness of my crime or my sin. Which makes this difficult because what Paul teaches us, he says, for the wages of sin is death and the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. In Christ. He does not tell you what the sin is because it's every sin. No little, no big, all the same. One sin is as bad as the next. To fully comprehend what this really truly means, we are in need of a biblical understanding of what sin is. And we are never allowed to change that biblical understanding and the truth of what that sin may be. My reason for going so heavily on this today is the problem we are faced with is that some teachers of the Bible in churches today have attempted to whitewash a number of those sins that are listed in the Bible. Due to social and peer pressure, it isn't just some Protestant churches that have this problem, but also the head of a Catholic church which now will allow blessing of same-sex unions. So it is all going the wrong way. The point is here, of course, is clear to all of us. If we are to be a witness, which we are, of Jesus Christ, to be a community of believers, then we must at all times present ourselves according to what we profess that we believe. We say something, we should live like that. And we can never question the Word of God. We can never question what He has told us. We can't say, I'll believe this, but not that. It is all the same. Next is, of course, we need to walk humbly with God. Walking humbly does not mean the meaning that we have to be weak and be trampled upon. The most humble man to ever have lived was Jesus. But he was certainly not weak or timid in any way. When there was a requirement, he went angry. He would punish people physically. There was never a time he would walk back and apologise for the teaching and the decrees of the Father. And therefore we can call, we are called to be humbly standing firm as he did in everything we've been given in scriptures. We need to grab it all, believe it all and live it all. Nehemiah has given us an extensive list of names in this chapter, setting out carefully who and where and what their situation involved in being part of the practical outliving of the ministry. And concluding with the fact that everyone else needed to be in the place God had wanted them to be in. God has a plan for every one of us. We just need to listen to him. In verse 20 we read in 12, The rest of Israel and the priests and the Levites were all in the towns of Judah, everyone in his inheritance. This goes all the way back to Joshua when he crossed the river and came in. All parts of that land was given to them as an inheritance. Nehemiah's here primary objective at this stage was, for all intent and purposes, since the beginning of his ministry, when he first arrived in Jerusalem, to set out a vision for the communities in which they were supposed to commit to restore a faithful people to their God. It wasn't about the walls, it wasn't about the houses, it was about rebuilding the people of God that they may come back and worship him in a proper manner. Moving forward to the day of Jesus, we find this exact same thing in his teachings. Even we from time to time 
from his time on, from the time of Jesus on into the future, we are in fact living in a different and a new covenant with God than was in the Old Testament. Due to the fact that God had told these same people coming beyond the days of Nehemiah, in Zechariah we read a message given to the people of Jerusalem and Judea. It says, Then I took my staff called Favor and broke it. At that point God had two staffs because he was a perfect shepherd. One was called Favor and he broke it, revoking the covenant I had made, revoking the covenant with all the nations. It was revoked on that day and so the oppressed of the flock, the remnant, the remnant who was watching me knew it was the word of God. That's serious. It's as, as serious that revoking of that covenant as was the punishment in the days of Noah. The Lord God had simply revoked a covenant the people had been unable to live up to. It was an impossibility for man to live up to the, all of the Ten Commandments. And he replaced it with a new and better covenant through the Son, Jesus Christ. It was better and it was eternal this time. And it did not depend on the work or the effort of the people chosen to be part of that new covenant. It was underpinned by the grace, it was underpinned by the mercy and the love God has for his people. And then of course it is underpinned by the faith in the Son and the guidance of his Spirit. All of that comes together in the new covenant. All the minor prophets during this period seem to have failed in their work in bringing the people back to God, but they hadn't failed. They had simply given the warnings after warning after warning through the whole time. Ending, of course, the end of the testamental period, intertestamental period with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes that were running the temple and Jerusalem and the law, whom together was there to serve God but they took Jesus to the cross and killed him. It's a truly sordid history of people who had experienced the love and the mercy of God over centuries after centuries, throughout the days from all the way from Abraham all the way through to Jesus. It was the mercy of God upon his people. And yet they totally rejected his authority over their lives. I just hope and pray that this, that we will not be the subject of such sadness. But let us together be the light that shines in a dark world to bring the love, the mercy and the love of Christ into this community that we are living in and we are part of. Our stated vision for this church, as we have it on our website, it says, Our vision of Foster Tonkari Presbyterian Church is to be a community of people saved by faith and growing by God's grace. We desire to be directed by the infallible Holy Word of God contained in scriptures gathered around Christ sharing his gospel with the world. That's what we have put up publicly and we need to live it. May our loving God by his spirit enable us always to live lives that truly reflect such a lofty vision 
that he may through his power give us enablement to be just that people for him. As it says in Micah, Our Father, give us strength to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. Amen.